Welcome to the Relationship Help Show. I'm Dr. Roberta Shaler, the Relationship Help Doctor, and I'm here for you. Today we're going to talk about ways to stop tolerating abuse. Abuse you may not even have recognized that is happening now or that happened earlier in your life. Maybe you'll hear something today that you really need to hear. It's my hope that you will. You're not alone. It's not your fault. You are not to blame. And I'll help you use that redirected energy to recover and to rediscover you, your values, your dreams, your desires, and then realize them in healthy ways and in healthy relationships at home and at work. I'm so glad you're here. Welcome to the Relationship Help Show. I'm so glad you are here. Um, so many people have been telling their friends and inviting them to listen, and thank you for doing that. It really helps to get the word out to our friends and our family to help them understand what's really happening to us and perhaps to find out what's happening to them when they're in a relationship with a relentlessly difficult and toxic person. So thanks for doing that and welcome. If you're a first-time guest, I'm so glad you're here. And if you're a regular, I'd delight in the fact that you find value and you keep returning. So thanks for you being here too. Today we have a particularly special show because in my Facebook group, Optimize Life, and you're welcome to join that if you like, just go to facebook.com slash hijackles and you'll find us or facebook.com slash groups slash hijackles and you'll find us. It's a closed group. So that means for on Facebook, that people can see you're a member of the group, but they cannot see any of the conversation. Only other members can see that. So come on over there. So today I'm going to be doing part two of the piece that I started last week on how can I learn to trust. So very important, right? Because when we've been in betrayal situations, when we've had trauma situations, so hard to learn to trust again. And then we're going to have a particularly long interview with my guest today, Brie Bonshe from freefromtoxic.com. And we're going to be answering the question that comes up in the Facebook group all the time. Can a hijackle change, especially when they go to a new partner? Because of course you get amazing reports that the hijackle is the most wonderful thing since sliced bread in their new relationship. And you really shake your head and say, is that the same person? Did they really change? So we have the answers to that today with Brie Bonchet and I having a great conversation about such things as cognitive dissonance and agreeability and agreeableness. So those are some pretty important things to stay tuned for. I'm so glad you're here and we will be right back with today's Relationship Help Show. Stay tuned. Hello, this is Dr. Roberta Shaler. Are these stories and questions on today's show sounding familiar to you? Are you ready to say no more to the abuse from toxic people in your life? I'm so glad. 
You matter and you deserve to have real love, true love in your life. Love from yourself and love from others. Not that demeaning, discounting and dismissive masquerade that a hijackal pretends is love. I can help you regain yourself, your self-esteem, your self-confidence after a life with a hijackal, whether it was your partner, an ex, a parent or a child. Let's work together now. For individual sessions or small group coaching, visit forrelationshiphelp.com slash join. Talk soon. Welcome back. This is the second part of what we started last week in part one of How Do I Learn to Trust? So last time I was talking about the ego and how we have to learn to trust ourselves and to trust in whatever it is that supports us, whether it's a spiritual practice or whatever. And I finished last time by saying trust often seems impossible, but it's absolutely necessary. And I know in my in my work with couples and individuals through video conferencing all over the world, everybody has trust as a big issue. And it wasn't long ago that I was working with a high-level team from an international company, and we were comfortably enjoying a beautiful Southern California day together, and it was in the vice president's outdoor room overlooking the garden in his home. And there was something going on within this team I just felt it. I could see it. It was almost palpable. Um, but it was just not obvious, but so disruptive. And it kept the team from focusing on productivity and profitability. And it kept them engaged in endless conversations about who was right and who was wrong, who was responsible, who was shirking. And it went around and around. And we gathered together there. Why I was brought in was to an earth the issues and delve into the dynamics. And as I led them with a PowerPoint to examine different ideas about functioning as a collaborative high performance team and to lay some groundwork, everybody seemed to be in agreement with the concepts. And of course, there I am as a team builder, a mediator. I was looking for underlying issues and these fellows, they were all men, seemed to be masters at masking them. We were together for eight hours when the issue finally surfaced very subtly. Everyone felt the shift. Flights were delayed. Plans changed. We committed to staying together until the job was done. And underlying all the years of working together and even being able to say they loved each other was the, the issue, the crux of the dysfunction. They did not trust each other. They tried very hard to rationalize and make that reality go away, but it could not be extinguished. Because they care deeply about their company, their sales, their mission, these guys hung in and the chasm was bridged. And all the denial in the world could not cover the result of their lack of trust. Now, happily enough, they are now engaged in much more honest ways and are building a culture based on trust. For many of us who grew up under difficult circumstances, trust can be a very difficult issue, just like with that team. We experience life very much like that Charles Schultz cartoon character. You know, the Charlie Brown 
situation that you see so many times. Time after time, Charlie Brown goes to kick the football from the hands of Lucy and only to flop after the ball has been suddenly pulled away by Lucy. Regardless of our experience, growth can only occur when we continue to trust, even in spite of our experience. Among the things was need to trust are who we are, where we are, and where we're going. So how do you learn to trust? It's a really, really, really big issue. Trust is fundamentally with ourselves, within ourselves. As with many of the issues of life, most of us would rather look to circumstances and conditions than to look inside ourselves, and that doesn't work. We get some very poor messages when we're young about trust. I don't know if you've ever thought of this, but even the way to teach children to say they're sorry causes trust issues. Well-intentioned parents insist that children apologize for everything they do that someone thinks that they shouldn't have done. And of course, if their behavior hurts another person, yes, it requires talking about. Sometimes, though, you're just not sorry. But your mother raised you right, so you apologize from that habit. Now, is that an example of being trustworthy? Likely not. So we learn early on that we cannot trust even an apology in many cases. And it just continues to get worse from then on. Many of us have experienced abandonment, betrayal, denial, and that again puts trust in question. So learning to trust is a much bigger issue than it first appears. We have history and habit and hope to consider. Do you trust yourself to perceive the world accurately? Do you trust yourself to choose people in your life wisely? And do you trust yourself to know when it's best to walk away from people and situations? Many folks need help with trust issues because they can't objectify the various elements of their life as easily as a professional can help them do. So often when I'm working with people, I truly understand the dynamics of helping people move towards being able to trust themselves and others and the universe. There is much in life that can erode possibility and getting help to build it up once again is a very wise step. Trust is a deep way of being in the world. Learning to truly trust really takes commitment. The first step is to examine your beliefs. Where does trust fix into the mix? Is it important? Do you have a source that you trust, a higher power? That would be the basis for all that flows through you in a name of trust. Again, you can't trust in any measured amount. You either trust or you don't. And the next step is to decide if you're a person who trusts and is trustworthy. Now that sounds so simple, but you really have to think about it. I'm not suggesting that you decide if you've been a person who trusts. I'm suggesting that you decide if you are a person who trusts and is trustworthy. And if that is what you want to be, you become one from this moment forward. Prove it to yourself by keeping your commitments to yourself. If you wouldn't renege on a commitment to somebody else, why would you renege on a commitment you made to yourself? If you matter, you'll play on your own team. 
Then decide what trusting and trustworthy looks like, sounds like, and acts like in the world. And we're talking about you, not anybody else. Once you know clearly what you value and believe about trust, create alignment within yourself by being that way in the world. And when you determine that that's the life you want, take the steps to take yourself to the place where you can accept that you never know if trust is foolish or wise, but that you have to trust is wise no matter how foolish it seems. And trust is not a commodity, but a way of being in the world. So trust yourself. You can't be in the present moment without trust. Listen to that little voice inside you, those feelings in your gut, and go from there. Talk soon and start trusting. Life as a couple can be exciting and enriching. You both feel supported, known, heard, and appreciated. You know you're safe. Is that what you're experiencing? Does your partner have your back? Can you be vulnerable safely? Do you trust each other fully? Would you say you were emotionally intimate? If not, things can get much better. I'm Dr. Roberta Shaler, and I work with couples just like you all over the world by video conferencing. If you want a world-class relationship, learn how now. Visit forrelationshiphelp.com slash join and schedule a time to work together. Let's talk soon. forrelationshiphelp.com slash join. Welcome to the Relationship Help Show. I'm Dr. Roberta Shaler, and I have a guest today that is really exciting to me because we work in the same field, and that is that we help people deal with the difficult and toxic relationships in life. So my guest today is Brie Vanchet, and here she is, beautiful Brie, sitting right there. So hello. Hi. I'm so glad that you could join me today, and I just want to tell folks a little bit about you. I always ask my guests to submit the words they'd like me to use to describe them, so I'll read it to you. Mm -hmm. Brie Wachet is a licensed psychotherapist with almost two decades of experience working in the field of mental health and trauma recovery. She specializes in helping people recover from toxic relationships. We know a little something about that, eh, folks? Um, and she shares her insights about narcissistic personality disorder in particular and psychopathology in her blog, freefromtoxic.com. And that's where I actually found Brie. Her articles have been featured in major online magazines, and she founded, ready, World narcissistic abuse awareness day which is the first of june every year she's also on the board of directors of the association of narcissistic personality disorder and psychopathy educators and survivors treatment so lots to talk about brie so tell us how you got interested in helping people recover from toxic relationships well thank you for having me on first of all um I, I think I got involved the way a lot of people do, and that's through personal experience. And there's, you know, nothing like personal experience when it comes to toxic relationships with pathological people. Um, I certainly did not learn it in graduate school. I think maybe I got a day or two of personality disorders, and it certainly wasn't 
anything like my real life experience uh, had taught me. So that's basically what prompted me to, to start learning more and getting involved and, and then, of course, helping people. I think it's really common for those of us who actually work in this field to have experienced being in this field. Be, uh, and what I mean being in this field is that we actually had it happen to us. You know, I was raised by a hijackal and an extreme passive aggressive. And of course, I then became hijackal bait. So my first husband was a hijackal and on and on it went from there until I figured out what was causing it. You know, it's sort of like you keep having children until you figure out what makes that happen and then you stop doing that. (laughs) So it's a good thing that some of us have had these experiences, sad though they may be, that we can then help other people because we have the empathy for it. We understand it because hijackals, what they really want to do is cull you from the herd and define your reality for you. And so they keep telling you it's not, everything is your fault and you don't have any value at all. So a big question that you and I are going to discuss today is one that keeps coming up in my Facebook groups. And it comes up in this form. They'll say something like, should I warn the woman that my ex hijackal is dating? or I'm hearing all kinds of reports that he's changed with his new partner. Uh, Is that possible? So let's take that last question. Is it possible, Brie? For a narcissist to change? (laughs) Well, you know, I guess that depends upon who you ask, because in our field, there are some professionals that believe it is possible for a narcissist to change. I personally don't subscribe to that, but um, I do know for certain that anyone in our field that you ask would agree that if a narcissist were able to change, it would not be that dramatic, overnight, quick flight to health that, uh, that survivors often describe. It would take um, a a lot of years. It would be a really gradual and slow process. And it would require a lot of effort, determination, and therapy. (laughs) So I think that when, um, when survivors see that quick, dramatic flight to health, what they're really seeing is pathology. And they're seeing that pathological relationship cycle just repeat itself it's starting from the beginning sure and- let, let me just let me just say something about that you know that's what we call the love bombing stage so their pathology which is what Bree's terminology for that is is that they're saying oh i think i'm going to find a live one here that i can control and so I'm going to charm this person. I'm going to be the person of their dreams. And I am going to show up that way because I know how to get one. And that's what we're describing as the pathology. So it's important for us to know that what it, it really looks like in the field <laughs> as opposed to the way that we just describe it. So go on. They have Their pathology is showing now. They've turned on the charm and they're in acquisition mode. Right, and, and that's really what they're saying. It, it, it does on the surface look like change, but it's really pathology. And they're going to take their pathology, their disorder, basically, 
into every relationship because it's persistent and it's pervasive and it goes wherever they go. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it's, it's really what's happening with survivors is what you're, is cognitive dissonance is kind of kicking in and it's really driving that question of, Oh my gosh, I, you know, it doesn't matter. I know what I've experienced, but it, it's, they've changed. It looks like they're a whole new person. So. Yeah. And I usually tell people in, you know, in the Facebook group that ask, and if anybody wants to join this closed Facebook group, that means people can see you're in the group, but they can't see what you write. Um, the group is called Optimize Life. And when I, when people ask that question, I say, think back to what happened when you first met them. Do you think that the person before them now thought they changed because they were a charmer to you? And that newness, that freshness of the hunt, I mean, these are predators. They are going to do whatever they need to do. The camouflage, the preening, the feathers go up, whatever it is they need to do to attract the next person into their lives. But it seems this idea of cognitive dissonance is so important. So let's describe what we're talking about. How would you put that in really simple terms? What is cognitive dissonance? Really simply, it is basically a psychological term that describes the mental stress of having two conflicting beliefs at the certain at the same time, or it could be the mental stress produced when your behavior is in conflict with your belief. Lovely. Okay. So, how does that apply to somebody who's been unceremoniously dumped by a hijackal? because they've gone running on to what seems like greener fields. And they're there sitting saying, well, what was wrong with me? Was I chopped liver and now they're this wonderful person? How do we describe cognitive dissonance in, in, the, in the survivor there? Well, what's happening is they, after they've been ceremoniously, ceremoniously dumped, um, they, they'll, as um, I'm sure a lot of your clients and listeners, they find themselves on the internet and they, their searches lead them to uh, learning about narcissistic personality disorder and narcissistic abuse and uh, the pathological relationship cycle. And that really gives them a lot of clarity. It helps them realize that they weren't imagining things. It wasn't all their fault. Uh, they weren't being oversensitive. And that, that helps them resolve a lot of the dissonance from the relationship. And so when they see the new person, um, and it appears that the, the narcissist has changed, all that cognitive dissonance kind of creeps back in and they're, you know, set back to square one, not knowing what's what or how to move forward or how to resolve that place of being in all that mental stress and distress of cognitive dissonance. Mm -hmm. And I know that this is expressed to me in my practice so often as is to you. And I do all my work worldwide through video conferencing. So I know it happens in every country. Um, is that there's in cognitive dissonance, you, you think you've got something nailed down. So you think you know it, you know, that's the cognition. I know 
this. And then you're presented with this. And it's from the same person and it's in the same situation, i.e. an interpersonal relationship. And you go, no, this is the one I know. No, what's happening over there? Well, what about that? Well, what about this? And you get into that moment where what do I believe? And what do I believe about myself? Because if this, is, if this new person is true, then wasn't I good enough? And the old person told me all the time I wasn't good enough. And you just get into this horrible, horrible place, which can be anxiety-ridden and quite paralytic for many people. They become fixated on why couldn't I keep that person? Why wasn't that available to me, this wonderful, new, charming person who's showing up? Yeah, that's a really good point because when when they you know find out through the grapevine or social media that the narcissist has appeared to change, it really pokes a hole in their belief and challenges everything that their recovery was built upon, like you were saying. And and it it's you know, it just puts them in that stuck place of of and then what do we do when we're there and, and people do this all the time without realizing it is we tend to uh, pick the path of least resistance to um, help us relieve and resolve some of that distress. And um, there's a bunch of ways that we can do that. Well, that's interesting. You put it that way. We pick the path of least resistance. So what would be an example of that path? Well, a lot of times when we're feeling that dissonance, the, the easiest solution will always be the path of least resistance. And it will be the solution that will give us the most relief in the short term, but probably not the most optimal solution in the long term. And so we're human and we, that's what we tend to do. And we tend to engage in like protective defense mechanisms of rationalization and justification. And that kind of provides us a bit of a refuge, like a, uh, so that we can, you know, not, we can put off having to deal with what maybe we're not ready to face. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it, it is difficult, you know, because, We've been through the idealization phase, idealization phase, where we are that new person in their life and they want to impress us and please us and get us. And then they start to devalue us, right? And then we think, oh, no, no, they're having a bad day. You justify, you rationalize, you make excuses. Oh, they don't really mean that. You know, they had a bad conversation with their mother. So all these things that they say to themselves to say, oh, no, I was right. That person who idealized me is the real person. And this new person who's showing up who's devaluing me is not, not the real person. So we get hooked on hope that the idealized version is going to come back. Mm-hmm. And we, we really want to believe that. And if the situation is that the narcissist is male and the partner is female, we have a natural biological tendency to nurture. So we seem to take on, and even more so if our background dictates it, but we seem to take on the, 
I can help. I can fix it. I can figure this out. I'll love him through it. I will always be there. I'll be patient. I'll be compassionate. I won't be demanding. I, I, I will do all of these things where in point of fact, the hijackal or the narcissist in this case is going, hmm, I'm getting more and more for nothing here. What do you say about that? Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think that's exactly what the uh, narcissist or antisocial personality disordered person wants their partner to do is to try harder and work harder and do more and accommodate more and bend more. Um, absolutely. It, you know, I, I think that, like you said, it's, it's in some people's personalities to be more nurturing or to want to try to help. And, and there are some uh, personality traits that I think would be really interesting to talk to that um, talk about that make people more prone to cognitive dissonance. Mm -hmm. What would those be? Um, I, you know, it's interesting too, because I, I have so many clients who, and people on my blog, and one of the major things that in their recovery that really is so hard to, to kind of overcome and, and it's necessary to overcome to move forward is cognitive dissonance. It's really a key feature of narcissistic abuse recovery. And when you research how to treat it, there's not much, but when you <laughs> research um, about it, I, I read that it's one of the most, it's one of the, it's one of the 50 most written about psychology topics. So it's interesting that there's not a whole lot to treat it. So I've been doing my own research and I've come across a few interesting things. Um, uh, people who are prone to stress are more prone to cognitive dissonance. Mm -hmm. which I think is really interesting because, and makes sense because, you know, cognitive dissonance is mental stress. Mm -hmm. So of course people who are more sensitive to stress are going to react uh, quicker and more often and more intensely when they experience any kind of mental stress or any kind of stress. Mm -hmm. And so there are certain personality types and traits that um, are, you know, more prone to cognitive dissonance. And one of those personality types is a personality type we're all familiar with, and that is type A personalities, which is pretty um, interesting that they are more prone to stress than their type B counterparts. Even and, though they love to create it. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, this isn't going to be a comprehensive description of type A's, but some of the because sometimes they can be really rough and, you know, aggressive. But some of the personality traits of type A's that make them more prone to stress are conscientiousness. Mm -hmm. They're really responsible, right, reliable. They're, they can be sensitive. And they can be, um, oh, my gosh, um, let me just fill in for a second there, because I think that the striving, 
the whole idea of striving fits into the type A personality. Like, go, go, go. It's got to be better. It's got to be done. It's got to be on time. You can do better. You all should do better because I'm doing better. I mean, they create their own stress, not purposefully, but because of the way that they engage in the information they take in. So I can do it. I should do it you know, and so they expect that of other people, and that's where we get to be a little bit harsh, but if you're a type A person, you think you've got something figured out because you're quite quick and you're on it, and then something is the exact opposite or close to the exact opposite, and you go, hey, no, I had that nailed down. I had that perfected, and now it isn't like that at all, so I think that's what you were going for, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, that sort of a bit of rigidity, Mm-hmm. And they can also be anxious, which is also another group of people that are more prone to cognitive dissonance. And that's people who are more neurotic and anxious mm-hmm. and people who are prone to stress illnesses such as IBS or headaches, insomnia. Um, they are more prone and people who are agreeable, which I thought was interesting as well. Um, they've, studies have found that they believe that the trait for agreeableness is hardwired. And so that people who are agreeable also are more attuned to any kind of conflict or disagreement externally or internally. And they also respond with more um, intensity and quicker and more frequently to any kind of um, stress or well, so you can see we've got a lot to talk about today with my guest, Brie Bonchet. She's a licensed psychotherapist, and you can find her blog, which you want to do, at freefromtoxic.com. Free from toxic. You want to go there and spend a couple of hours just reading. <laughs> It'll be good for you. And um, you want to also have a look at her book, I Am Free. You'll see that on her blog great stories of people. People have shared their stories about what they actually went through. So we're going to talk more about that when we come back. We're going to talk more about how survivors can actually resolve this cognitive dissonance and move forward and what that takes. And uh, I want to talk a little bit more about where we just ended, which is how we somatize what's going on, how whatever's going on in our head can make its way into things that happen in our body. So I'm Dr. Roberta Shaler. You can learn more about Bree's work at freefromtoxic.com. And of course, you know, you can find me at forrelationshiphelp.com. We'll be right back for part two. Hi, this is Dr. Roberta Shaler. Handling hijackles is exhausting. It's never-ending. An endless cycle of crazy-making, alienation, and constant drama. And cycles are difficult to step out of. I know because I've been there too. And that's why I reach out to you to offer the insight, skills, and strategies you need to heal. My small group programs, Handling Hijackles and Hijackal Recovery and Rediscovery, will shortcut your journey to healing to save your sanity, and to stopping the crazy-making. Visit forrelationshiphelp.com slash join now, and let's talk soon. 
So welcome back. This is part two of my interview with Brie Bonchet, and she has some great things to share with us today. In part one, we were talking about cognitive dissonance. Great word, right? Do you know what it means? It means that my brain just can't handle this. I thought I had this over here, and it looked and smelled and moved like this, and actually it shows up over here as something completely different, and now I don't know where to look. It's like that person with their head on a swivel. Um, and that creates a lot of anxiety in a lot of people. So, Bree, we were just mentioning before the break, and you brought it up, that many times people, particularly with people with anxieties and type A personalities, will have a tendency to have what they're feeling, this pressure and anxiety and stress, actually show up as things that are happening in their bodies. And I am, what do you have to say further about that? Yeah, I mean, definitely people who are more stress prone have more somatic symptoms. And it makes, not the somatic symptoms, but just being more stress prone will make them um, more prone to cognitive dissonance. And so... I, I wanted to share this because so uh, type A personalities, the trait of agreeableness, and people who are anxious and neurotic, there's, there's sort of a pattern of traits and uh, that make people prone to cognitive dissonance that we're seeing. And those are being anxious, conscientious, neurotic, and sensitive. Mm. And I just, I thought that was interesting because in Sandra Brown's research, are you familiar? I don't know if anybody's familiar with Sandra Brown. I'm sure they are. She wrote the book, um, Women Who Love Psychopath. She did a, a research on survivor personalities. And she found that survivors tend to have a cluster of traits that put them at harm when they're in the presence of pathological people. And these traits aren't bad traits. They're actually really, they're, they're good traits, and, but they just work against the survivor when they're in, you know, the presence of people who have no conscience and no empathy. Yeah, let's just jump on that one for a second, because that's really big. We think that somebody is like us. Right, we meet someone and we actually project that they're like us. Like, this will be great. They think like me, they feel like me, they are afraid of the same things. And then we learn that maybe that other person over there doesn't seem to be feeling very much, or they're certainly not listening when I'm talking about my feelings, and they don't seem to get it. And they're not only are they not interested, but if they were listening, they don't get it. And they immediately want to tell me why I shouldn't feel like that. And we do run into people with these traits, the hijackal traits, of course, and the ones that you're describing as pathologies, who really do not have empathy or conscience working for them. They can mimic empathy when it suits them. They, they know that that exists and you should do that if you really want something from somebody. And, but they don't naturally feel that. You know, it just doesn't come naturally to them to have that empathy and to be able to put themselves in somebody else's shoes and care once they're there. So this is a difficulty because if you expect people to be like you, you'll often be disappointed. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so you said that there were some personality types that are more prone to cognitive dissonance. So would, are you saying then that 
the uh, anxious people and the type A people are the ones who are most prone, or is there one group that is most prone? Well, so so the the traits that Sandra found in survivors that make them more prone to harm in the presence of pathological relationships are the same traits that make people more prone to cognitive dissonance. Mm -hmm. Some of them are conscientiousness. There's more, but I'm highlighting conscientiousness, neuroticism, hyper-empathy, and um, not anxiety. And so it's really, if you think about it, it's a double whammy because, because the same traits that, that make them vulnerable to these relationships also keep them there. And so I, I think this is like a really interesting thing for survivors to understand and also for clinicians is the way we can help them as far as helping them reduce their anxiety through mindfulness and cognitive behavioral um, interventions and things like that. So it gives us some real direction on how we can help survivors resolve their feelings of cognitive dissonance to move forward. Yeah, and in in parallel to what you were saying, um, I was writing about it this morning that, (coughs) excuse me, um, a hijackal will choose you because they think you don't have enough self-respect and then they will make you wrong for not having enough self-respect. Yeah. You know, it, it is that crazy paradox that happens in many ways when you're with one of these people. And you may not have had that experience before. Or it may be so unconscious that you've had that experience before in your life that your mom or dad or grandma or somebody close to you was a hijackal or had a pathology that is, it seems normal to you and it just goes by. And then when you're in the charm phase, you're not noticing it. Then as it starts to fall apart, it seems normal. And by the time you wake up and smell the herbal tea, like you're all up in a field by yourself with no friends and everybody believes the hijackle. Mm-hmm. So it really is very problematic. And if you have, if anybody is relating to this, which I'm sure most of you are, because that's why you listen to the Relationship Home Show. Um, We're trying to give you some hooks to hang this on, some way of looking at this to realize that it is not about fault. You know, the hijackal is always going to tell you everything is your fault. And why? Because a hijackal cannot have any faults. Because they would shatter. And they're so fragile in their ego that if they thought for a moment that they had a problem, they would shatter because they have many problems. And so that's why they don't seek out therapists either. (laughs) Because that whole idea of having someone say, well, perhaps you were part of this problem. I've had people in couples therapy, Brie, and I'm sure you have too, where you know, you, you walk through for a few sessions, you get the lay of the relationship, you begin to understand, and you turn to the hijackal and you say, well, you know, what was your part in this? Oh, not me. I didn't have any part in this. I mean, it's all the other person. And 
if I just suggest that they might have had a part in it or I point out a part in it, I've had people who have just leapt up and, you know, questioned everything about me and walked out because they were hijackals. And they want to be, they're so fearful of being seen as having any, any problem that then they have to turn and blame you and make you wrong. I had one person, honest to goodness, on his way out, he's yelling and screaming. He's questioning my credentials, whether my mother wears trench boots and whether I should be allowed to breathe on his way out of the door. What's your experience with those kind of folks? You know, I, they, I usually don't see them <laughs> in therapy because they, they rarely come mm-hmm. unless they're forced to. Or, but, but it's funny because if and when they do present to therapy, it's not because they've had an epiphany or, you know, it's, it's that they're trying to learn how to better deal with all the, the jerks in their life. And so, um, yeah. And also for, for survivors, it's, it's very dangerous to go to therapy, uh, with their abusive partner. It's, it usually does not turn out well. And, Well, I think we can put a caveat on that. You know, I've had so many clients who have said to me when they finally worked with me and they said, I can't believe that somebody finally gets it. We've been to three therapists and each time the hijackal manipulated the therapist into agreeing with him or her. And then I got nailed to the wall with two people instead of one. And I went to therapy so hopeful that somebody would see the plight that I'm in. And in fact, both of them lambasted me when I got there. So this is a very common thing. Why I often see couples is because they're in the hope phase. The partner says, you know, let's see if we can make something work. And I I find that there are three kinds of hijackals, and uh, I'm interested in your take on this, Brie, but what I've learned from doing this work for so long is that they're the kind of dyed-in-the-wool hijackal, the real genuine article. That means they have the DNA markers for it, the brain chemistry for it, and the background in their life. And then there are the gray, I mean, if you think that those ones are black, the next ones are gray. And they're the ones who were raised in a hijackal environment, but they have more awareness of how they want to behave. So mostly they behave well, but under any type of stress, they revert to the hijackal behaviors and then as that gets more and more, the relationship deteriorates. And then there's this third category, the white hijackal, which is the person who so fearfully only got one set of skills from being from a hijackal parent. They only got one set of ways of looking at life, one mindset, one thing to do. And they're living from that one thing. And I always know one of those people when they come in because they will say to me, There'll be tears, real tears. I mean, remember, hijackals can cry on a dime if it's going to get them what they want. But (laughs) these have real tears, and they say, I don't want to hurt her. I don't want him to be that upset. I don't understand what I'm doing, and I need another set of skills. And they genuinely want that, but they have never availed themselves of the possibility of having that. What do you think? Hmm. You know, that's interesting. I never really thought of it. Um, before, but yeah, absolutely. There's, there's different degrees and it's, you know, certainly on a spectrum and, and, you know, no two are exactly alike, just like no, like two other people aren't alike who aren't, who don't have a personality disorder. 
I know a, a lot of times people will ask me, well, what do you think my ex-narcissist will do? And I don't know. I mean, <laughs> we could, we could, we could kind of uh, predict maybe what they might do, but everybody's different. And um, what one narcissist will do or and another might not. So, but absolutely on a spectrum. And I think some definitely do have more awareness of what they're doing than others. And, um, and some probably don't have any awareness at all or don't care. No, well, I think you look at serial rapists or Unabomber, you look at people like that, and they're lost in their world. I mean, they only have fixations and they're, they're dealing with life that way. But they're usually not in relationship. They're not living with some other human being. They've usually uh, excluded themselves from that because nobody's good enough for them. Um, however, I think that these degrees, as you say, of hijackalness or pathology exist. And certainly my experience, having worked with hundreds of people in, in, this, in this field, um, and the ability for somebody to honestly, big caveat, honestly want to learn to do things differently, not for the moment in order to win, but in order to have a better life, a better relationship, a better modeling for the children, all of that. Those are the moments of real breakthrough. The moments when somebody can be comfortable enough and feel safe enough in our presence to say, yeah, I'm really not dealing with that very well. And I know I put up a really show of strength and I, I, I make a lot of noise and I use a lot of verbal force, um, but it's not what I want to do. Help me do that differently. Those are the ones that we most want to see coming because they're the ones that can have the best effect. So if I've had a partner, I don't want to miss tying this all back together, Brie, uh, if I've had a partner, someone listening has had a partner, who they finally been discarded by or they discarded, remember we're going to go through idealization and then devaluation and then discard, um, and then they take up with somebody else and all of a sudden they're prince or princess charming, <laughs> and we're wondering why couldn't they be that way for me? We get that cognitive dissonance that you're talking about. How do I move beyond that? Or how does a person listening move beyond that wondering about this box or that box? Do I have it right? Am I, could I be that wrong? How do they move forward? Yeah, that's a good question. So one way is to basically just bring it to more conscious awareness, to, under, to kind of catch yourself feeling that mental stress of having that dissonance and, and really just resolving it um, on a more conscious level so that you don't engage in that justification and rationalization that sounds like what you, similar to what you said, which would be like, well, he's only cruel because he's at, you know, he's, he's has pressure at work. So that would be one way. Um, another way is to just, act <laughs> to just behave uh, in a way that really promotes recovery and healing because there's a principle that's called attitude consistency where when we act in ways that um that we don't expect ourselves to act in that are that are 
beliefs about that behavior will change. So if you just... Yeah, sort of fake it till you make it, you yeah, mean? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> absolutely, that's exactly what it is. And so then if you just act in ways that are going to be healthy and be good for your healing and recovery, then your beliefs will soon follow suit. <laughs> Well, that's great. And I want to thank you for being with us today, Brie. I love to get other insights from other professionals and share them with all the people who listen to the Relationship Help Show. So thank you so much for doing that. My guest today has been Brie Bonchet. She still is. You can see her beautiful face there. And if you want to learn more about her, go to freefromtoxic.com. You want to feel that you're not alone. So pick up a copy of her book, I Am Free. Why? Because in there, there are so many stories of other people who are going through what you've gone through and what they thought about it, how they felt about it, and what they did about it. And that's so important to know that you're not alone. So freefromtoxic.com. And of course, stay tuned. We've got other segments in the show Always go and listen to the Relationship Help Show in the archives. Just go to relationshiphelpshow.com. And if you're just new to thinking about these things, go and look at forrelationshiphelp.com and click on programs because there is a new course there called Seeing the Cycles. And you want to be able to see the cycles so that you know if that has something to do with you or it doesn't. Thanks so much for being with us, Bree. Thank you so much for having me. No matter what's happening right now, life can get better. If you have a good relationship, it can become great. If your relationship is in trouble, we can find a solution. The good news is that it's in your hands to start. The not-so-good news is that it takes time, new insights and skills, and a whole bunch of willingness. But who would settle for less? Not you, right? Good. You want to feel seen, heard, known, accepted, and appreciated. You want honesty, safety, trust, respect, and reliability, too. Read my book, Kaizen for Couples, available for download at couplesbook.com. Start there, and let's talk soon. I'm so glad you were with me today for the Relationship Help Show, where we become stronger together. I hope you'll go back and listen to part two of How to Build Trust. Go back, too, to last week's show for February 27th and listen to part one, because learning how to trust again is so important. Our guest, Brie Bonchet, brought us all kinds of information about whether or not A hijackal can really change its stripes and spots, especially in a new relationship. So much to talk about, so much to think about. Stay tuned for next week when my guest will be Dr. Gans Ferentz. He has great things to talk about. He's just written a new book called The Seven Me Factors, and he talks about men and relationships particularly. So men, you want to be listening, and women, you want to listen in 
because we need to understand what's really going on with our men, particularly in toxic relationships. And we're going to talk about cultural history and how our relationships developed into the ways that we now know them. So stay tuned next week for Dr. Gans Ferentz. As you go through this next week, remember, you are strong no matter how you feel in this moment. You are capable and can overcome obstacles even when you feel like quitting. You are worthwhile and deserve to be loved and in healthy, supportive relationships. And you will never allow yourself to be in, abused in any way because you matter. Talk soon. I'm so glad you spent this time with me today. I hope you heard something that touched your heart. You can have the life and relationships that you most want, and that begins within you now, today. I'm always here for you. Life can get better. And you heard that from me, the Relationship Help Doctor, Roberta Shaler. I work with clients throughout the world through video conferencing. We can talk. Learn more at forrelationshiphelp.com. Visit youtube.com slash forrelationshiphelp. And if you want to listen to the show's archives, visit relationshiphelpshow.com. Join me for next week's show. I'll see you then. Talk soon.